2 Kings 19, we're back to the life of Hezekiah. Once again, turn to 2 Kings chapter 18 first. I want to read one verse. Once again, let's read verse chapter 18, verse 5. In order to remind us what kind of man Hezekiah was, 2 Kings 18.5 says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. King Hezekiah is known for his trust in the Lord. This is what he's all about. We see that by the fact that he proved it. He demonstrated his faith by, for example, smashing all the idols in the land. So many things, opening the temple for worship. He trusts in the Lord. He to reestablish in Judah, has reestablished this idea of trusting in the Lord. But in 2 Kings 18, his faith, his confidence in the Lord is under assault by the Assyrian army. This is what we saw the last time we uh, dealt with this issue. Uh, they physically assaulted the fortified cities of Judah. There were many of those, western Judah. They assaulted them. Uh, and now they're threatening Judah, uh, Jerusalem rather. They've come to the capital, near the capital, outside of the capital. They have a, a part of their army there, and they're waiting, and they're threatening, and their approach has changed now from a physical assault to a spiritual assault. They claim that Hezekiah's trust in God is not all it's cracked up to be. This is, they, they're trying to undermine Hezekiah's faith in the Lord by means of a, a, verbal, a verbal battle. They're, they're masters of the art of propaganda. And this is what the Assyrians did. They warned the people, don't trust in God. Nobody can stop us. We're Assyria. We're the mighty power. Nobody can withstand our might. How could Jerusalem think, possibly think that they could withstand our might? No one else has. Look at, to pick it up uh, from last time, look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 33. The Rabshakeh, the representative of Assyria, says, Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered uh, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath? And these are different places they've defeated. And Arpad. And uh, where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Ivo? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Samaria, Israel, the northern capital? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? No one's done it. And you're not going to do it. What's the result of this sustained propaganda against the Lord, against trust in the Lord? Well, it's clearly shaken the faith of Hezekiah and his leaders. They, have, they are shaken in their faith. They're worried that they're going to be overrun by Assyria. Wouldn't you be if they're standing outside the gates of Jerusalem? Look at chapter 18, verse 36. The people were silent. They answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Don't answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, these are the leaders that met with the Rabshakeh, Shebna, the scribe, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. They, their reaction is they, they tear their clothes. It's the signs of mourning, signs of humility. That they're, they, they cover themselves with that cloth, sackcloth. In verse 3, look at verse 3, you can almost feel the shaken faith of Hezekiah as he says, the day of distress, rebuke, rejection. It's not a good day. Now, I've heard of people having a bad hair day. 
But uh, to face the mightiest empire, mightiest army of the 8th century B.C., the Assyria, is a different matter altogether. And that's serious. Very serious. I've often thought in history, if I could live in any time in history, time period, I would not live in this time period when Assyria was in charge. That's a time I don't want to live. And uh, I can imagine they were quaking in their boots. Hezekiah compares this time to children. Look at verse 3, on the verge of being born, but lacking the strength to actually be born. In other words, he's saying, I'm facing this crisis. I'm helpless to do anything about it. I can't do anything about this. Seems to have a lack of confidence. Note the lack of confidence in the message he sends to Isaiah in verse 4. Perhaps, he says to Isaiah, the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, the Rabshakeh, the official, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. He says, perhaps. Perhaps? That's not exactly total confidence. Perhaps the Lord will hear. Do I hear a word of doubt in the word perhaps? You know, you can see his trust in the Lord is not as firm as it was before. They're, they're really humbling themselves before God, which is a good thing, of course. They're also worried. You know, a crisis can really shake us, can it? We're, we face a crisis in life. And it can really shake us to bring it all to our day, to bring it down to our day, for example. We're talking about the spiritual assault. What if, for example, the government came and said, hey, and this could possibly, this could very well happen in the future, and little hints of it along the way, uh, as, uh, are taking place, have taken place in the past, may take place in the future. What if the government ordered our churches, all churches, to close down those that, that preach the, against biblical uh, lifestyles that are run biblical? What if they said, close, stop preaching this way or close down, close your doors? Wouldn't that shake our faith? Well, how would we react to that? What if they said they outlawed, outlawed the Bible as a book that could be taught? That could shake our faith. You know, I believe this spiritual assault on Hezekiah unnerved him. And also the assault is not against just Hezekiah and the people, it's against God himself. He says that again and again. Hezekiah, look at what he says in his message to Isaiah, the Rabshakeh has been sent to reproach the living God. And that's what really this whole section is about. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attack, an assault on God, the person of God himself. And can we really trust God? And that's what they're trying to undermine, their trust and faith in God. Now always remember... Whenever you face a crisis of any kind, when I face a crisis, uh, if we face a crisis in the future, at the root of it, is always, there's always a spiritual battle taking place. That's always the case. The question will always be, will we trust the Lord in this crisis? Will we trust him? Do we believe him? Do we believe that God is able to help us? Can we really trust him? Now, we have feet of clay, and we have these bodies of death we carry around. So the temptation is for us to waver in our faith when, when a crisis hits. What do we do when that happens? Well, we go to the Lord for assurance. Assurance. We seek his assurance. We go to his word for assurance. Because we know deep down inside we can trust God. We know that deep down inside, even though we may be outwardly shaken. And we're dependent upon him. Now, fortunately, Hezekiah remembers who his refuge is in time of trouble. And he goes to the right source for assurance. In fact, he's reassured uh, of his trusting God by four means that we'll see in this chapter. Four means. First of all, Hezekiah is reassured by the prophet's word. He's reassured by the prophet's word. That's in verses 4 to 13. Hezekiah is in trouble, great trouble, tremendous trouble, surrounded, yet he doesn't panic. Even though he's afraid, he's, he is afraid. He goes to the right source anyway. 
he sends messengers to the prophet Isaiah, right source. And he asks that, Isaiah, would you pray for us? Would you pray for the remnant of the people that is left? That's the right thing to do. Now, wouldn't it be great? You say, well, we don't have the prophet Isaiah here to go to. Wouldn't it be great if the prophet Isaiah was still here? And we could go to him. Hey, let's just, we got a problem here. Let's go down to the prophet Isaiah and talk to him about this. And we had access to him and we, we could be strengthened in our faith. faith. Can you imagine being reassured by the prophet Isaiah? Well, I have good news for you. We have the prophet Isaiah with us today. It's called the book of Isaiah. It's the inspired word of God, and we have everything he said that God wanted him to say. We can go to that book. In fact, we have all the words of all of God's prophets and all that was meant for, for them to say by God. We have that available to us. They make up the Holy Scriptures, and guess what? We can go to the Scriptures, his word, the word of the prophet, the word of God, for assurance when our faith is weak, when we're wavering, when we're in doubt. That's always the place to go to the word of God. And I like what Isaiah says in Verse 6, look at verse 5 and 6. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. He says to, uh, to tell, tell Hezekiah, Don't be afraid because of the words. The words the Rabshakeh has said, you know, that shows me Hezekiah was afraid, or he wouldn't have said, don't be afraid. He clearly is afraid, and his fear stems from the words of the Rabshakeh. This guy is standing outside Jerusalem saying, hey, we're going to get you guys. We've got our part of our army here. The other part of our army is in Lachish, destroying Lachish, basically, one of their big cities. It's scary. Their scare tactics worked. They wanted to, do, they wanted to instill fear in Hezekiah. They succeeded in instilling, instilling fear in him. You know, isn't that what godless people do, though? They cast doubt upon the person of God, the trustworthy character of God. They try to cast doubt on that. And if they succeed, there's fear on our part. But in reality, all this is a lie. It's a lie of Satan, and we need to see it for what it is. Never be afraid of the blasphemous words of those who are ungodly, who are speaking out against God, who are trying to undermine your faith, who are in a university trying to undermine the faith of Christian students, who are undermining the faith and people, uh, people's faith in the word of God. Never be afraid of that. That should be an encouragement to our souls. Throughout the scripture, we read words like, fear not, do not be afraid, again and again. We see it here. If we're trusting God, we can be at peace. We can have this calmness of spirit in our soul. Now, years ago, I memorized uh, a couple of verses from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4 to be exact. Great verses, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. They've always been a comfort to me. I love these verses. They say this. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, Lord. You'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. What a great verse. What a great verse those are. Trusting in God, having his peace. And I love the great hymn by Francis Havergal. I had Stephen sing, uh, uh, play Like a River Glorious tonight. And... Uh, what a great song. We don't sing that song these days. Unfortunately, we're missing out on that, by the way. I love the words, the lines that says, Stayed upon the Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Finding, as he promised, what? Perfect peace and rest. What a great song that is. Not a shade of worry, not a, a shade of care. 
uh, such a great song. Resting in the Lord is, is how you put away fears and doubts. Trusting in Him. The Lord says, don't be afraid of the words by which they blaspheme me. 2 Chronicles 32.19 says, uh, the parallel passage says of the Assyrians, they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. They treated God just like he was just another idol. You talk about blasphemy? They put God, the Lord God, on the same level as their own gods. But the Lord says, don't be afraid of all that. Verse 4, Hezekiah seemed to wonder if the Lord had heard the words even of the blasphemous Rabshakeh, and and if he would rebuke him. The answer to that question is this. Yes, he heard, and he will do something about it. He's going to act. The Lord's well aware of all blasphemous words that are spoken against him in this whole world. He knows who says what about him. He knows who's guilty. People curse God all the time. We hear that. God hears all this. He knows what's going on. They're not going to get away with it. God will deal with them in his own time. There will be a day when blasphemy of the Lord is going to be replaced by praise for the Lord. Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Even formerly blasphemous tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So don't be afraid, he says. There's another word, though, from the prophet. It's a word of prophecy in verse 7. Let's read from verses 7 through the beginning of verse 9. It says in verse 7, the Lord says this, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, in Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. I'm going to put a spirit in Sennacherib so that he will hear a rumor. He's going to hear a report, same word, rumor, report. He's going to hear a report and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish when he heard them say concerning Tirharka, king of Cush, behold, he has come out to fight against you. He once again sent messengers to Hezekiah. Here's what's happening. In verse 9, Sennacherib hears a rumor. Here's a report. Hey, Tirharka, king of Egypt, is on the march. He's coming out to fight against you. <laughs> He's coming out to fight against you. So Assyria has to stop everything they're doing. They have to forestall the invasion of Judah, stop what they're doing, and now turn their attention to Egypt to try to deal with them. So Hezekiah is left alone for the time being. That's the first part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. The rest of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled at the end of the chapter. Now, can the Lord divert the attention of a king? Can he do that? He can and did. You remember Proverbs 21.1? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. The Lord can do that with kings. He can, he's in control. The king of Assyria acts like he's the king of the universe. But he's going to find out like everybody else. He's, he too is under, and he's finding out, he too is under the authority of God. Well, these words of the prophet Isaiah are meant to reassure Hezekiah that his faith in God is the only sure foundation. There's no other way. Trusting the Lord will keep us from our fears and our doubts and our worries because we know that he's sovereign over the circumstances. And we have his word on that. So he's reassured by the prophet's word. Secondly, Hezekiah is reassured by a prayer hearing God. He's reassured by a prayer hearing God. That's in verses 9 to 20. Now since Sennacherib cannot invade Judah, he continues to use psychological warfare, spiritual warfare, we should say, against Judah. Look at verse 9. When he heard that, you know, Tirharka was coming, he sends messengers to Hezekiah. 
because he can't fight Hezekiah. Now he's got to turn his attention to Egypt. And he says, verse 10, Thus shall you say to Hezekiah, uh, the king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them? Even Gozon, Haran, Rezav, and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the God of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, of Hena? I have all places that Assyria has taken the task militarily. Nobody stopped us. We can't be stopped. We're the machine. We're the Assyrian machine. Now, in chapter 18, the king of Assyria, or the people, the, the representative of the king of Assyria has said to the people, of Judah, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Remember that in chapter 18? Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, say, telling you to trust in the Lord. He's trying to deceive you. He said it like four times. But now he says this, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Don't let God deceive you. Nobody can stop us from capturing Jerusalem. We'll do what we want to. Now he's accusing God of deception. That's so ironic. It's ironic because Sennacherib lives in a religious system in Assyria that tolerates all kinds of idols, all kinds of false idols. The whole system is a lie. None of these is true at all. None of these gods are real. And the the false idols are just that. They're false. And the one who is being deceived is Sennacherib and the Assyrians by their idols. The God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is God of absolute truth. He speaks absolute truth. He deals in absolute truth. He acts in a manner commensurate with, the, with absolute truth. And yet the deceived Sennacherib has the, the gall to accuse God of deception of all things. That shouldn't surprise us, should it, though? The world hates God. The world hates all that God stands for. They hate the truth itself. You know, if the world could, they would change. They would get rid of the truth entirely to replace it with their own perceived their own fallen perspective of everything, because they want what? They want everything to be relative, right? There's no truth. There's no absolute truth. Everything's relative is what they want. That's what they want. They just soon replace the truth. But they live under a lie. So the verbal attacks continue, like a dog that won't stop barking, just continue on and on and on. They're doing their best to undermine the faith of Hezekiah, but what does this drive Hezekiah to do? It drives him to pray. Look at verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were, not the God, they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from, the hand that all, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Now, it's always good when we're driven to prayer. And when difficult circumstances come your way, when they come my way, come my way that we should let that drive us to prayer. That's what we should do. Not turn away from God, but turn to God in prayer and trusting God. That's what Hezekiah does. And more than that, he gives us a lesson on how to pray. What a great, this is a great model prayer. This is how to pray. 
the messengers had documented their message. Besides giving it verbally, they had documented it in the form of a letter. Hezekiah takes that letter, and guess what becomes the subject of his prayer? The letter. Puts out before God says, here's what I want to pray about this letter right here. And he starts, he starts out very, this whole prayer is, is biblical, but he starts out in the right way by putting, putting his focus not on the problem, first of all, but on God. Now, we, we normally run to the problem, right? Oh, Lord, I got a problem here. Help me. He doesn't do that. He, first of all, focuses on God. Like, you know, the prayer in Matthew 6, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's where prayer starts. It's always best to, to begin prayer with the exaltation of God himself. Look, 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 look at these verses here. Hezekiah recognizes that God is sovereign over Judah, over the whole earth. He recognizes that the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. That's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, it's, the, the meaning is that God is the one who is present in majestic glory. He's present with us. He recognizes the unique position held by the Lord. He alone is God. He recognizes that God is the creator of all things. And so he gives God glory and praise and exaltation. Then he states the facts for the Lord. He says simply, Assyria is the greatest threat in the world. Their history proves it. <clears throat> That's my problem. Then he says, I need your help, Lord. Please deliver us from his hand. Very simple prayer, very short, sweet to the point. No vain repetition here at all. Gets right to it. And then he adds the fundamental, fundamental reason he's asking for all this, and that is, and I love this, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord our God. Isn't that great? Many times the only reason we pray is to fulfill a selfish desire. to believe. You know, we get ourselves in a mess, right? <clears throat> we want to be delivered out of the mess, and we'll pray, Lord, get me out of this mess. And when he doesn't answer that, we get all upset, right? You know, do we ever pray that Christ might be exalted through the mess that we're in? And the prayer is that all kingdoms will know that the Lord is God. That's a great prayer. I want this thing to be, I want this prayer to, to glorify, this answer to prayer to glorify you among the whole world. Now think of it. If the mighty and feared Assyrian army, feared by everybody, is defeated, think of how God can be glorified through that. That's what Hezekiah wants. Now our prayers rightfully include our asking for to meet our needs. God, the Lord's Prayer again, you know, give us this day our daily bread. We should ask for that. <clears throat> But we should also focus on the Lord being glorified and what he does through us, that he would be glorified in our lives. Prayer is never meant to be an outlet for selfishness. To meet our needs, yes, selfishness, no. It's also meant, though, to be to the glory of God, to exalt Christ. And look at the encouraging statement in verse 20. After he prays, <clears throat> Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, said to, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. I've heard you. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. Because you prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I've heard you. Almost as if he's saying, because you have, or since you have put prayer as such a priority, because you thought it was important to bring it to my attention, I'm taking notice of this. I'm listening to your prayer. I'm going to respond to your prayer. And according to 2 Chronicles 32, guess who else prayed? Isaiah. Isaiah prayed as well. You want Isaiah praying for you, by the way. I love Psalm 34, 15. <clears throat> and this is, I believe, also quoted in 1 Peter 3, 12, Mike's passage. For Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. 
eyes of the Lord toward the righteous and his ears open to their cry. That's what he's praying for. I, your Lord, look down and see here what we're praying. Now, I understand we're talking about righteous people praying who are living for God, who are making the Lord their trust. That's who we're talking about. And these people, prayers, God hears the prayers of such people as this. This should be a great assurance to us that the Lord is a God who hears prayer. Thirdly, Hezekiah is reassured by divine predestination. Sounds strange, doesn't it? He's reassured by divine predestination in verses 21 and 28. Now, these verses, as well as verses 29 to 34, contain the answer to the prayer, the total answer to the prayer that God's giving through Isaiah. And the verses 20 to 28, maybe they're set off in your Bible. It's it's poetry, actually. Assyria has mocked Judah, and they've mocked Judah's God. Now the tables are being turned. And then Jerusalem here is pictured as a virgin daughter who is mocking the once proud Assyria. Assyria used to be proud. Now they're mocking them. What's happening? Look at verse 21. Verse 21, 22. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him, against Sennacherib, against Assyria. She has despised you and mocked you. Judah, Jerusalem is, is pictured as a virgin. She's despising, mocking Assyria now. She's despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom you have reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Who do you think you are? The protector of Israel, the protector of the virgin daughter of Israel is God. He's not going to continue to tolerate Assyria's direct assaults on him, his own person, his insults. You're, you're mocking the Holy One of Israel. Who do you think you are? It's just so arrogant. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, through your messengers, to Assyria, he says, through your messengers you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots I have come to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. And I, and I cut down all its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I entered the farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. They're bragging about their accomplishments. They're saying, we went through Lebanon, Lebanon, known for its forests, its great trees, cedar trees. Man, we cut down trees. We got whatever we wanted. We destroyed that. We, we took care of business over there. We went down to Egypt, took, took care of business over there, bragging about their accomplishments. And they love to brag, Assyria does. And they, love to, and they like to exaggerate. You can't trust everything they say, necessarily. They are truthful in what they say in their history, and yet they like to exaggerate it as well. But the Lord steps in and he sets the record straight. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, have you not heard? You guys are bragging about how great you are. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. <laughs> From ancient times, God said, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field, as the green herb, as grass on the housetops, as scorched before it's grown up. He says, why did, he tells us why Assyria did what they did. Why was Assyria able to be such a military machine and accomplish so much? It's because God planned it from the very beginning. God's behind all this, ultimately. He predestined it to be so. That's what this section is about. God predestined this. Now, to the casual observer of that, t- of that day and age, he would look out and he would see the mighty Assyrian army and he'd say to himself, wow, look at their might. 
They're just imposing their will on everybody. Everywhere they go, everybody's being destroyed. They're such an awesome army. They rule everything. Who can stop them? He just saw Syria in his view. That's all he saw. But there's a theological truth beside, behind Assyria's dominance. God predestined all this to happen. It didn't just happen by accident. Isaiah 10.5 says, refers to Assyria as the rod of God's anger. God is using Assyria to bring down his wrath. He used them for that purpose. Now, that doesn't mean we can blame God for all the sins Assyria commits, all their uh, extreme violence in some cases unnecessarily, and all the things they do, but he did use them to accomplish his purpose. They didn't know that. They didn't care about any of that. They thought it was their own doing. They thought they were in charge. They're the ones doing this. They're, they never acknowledged God or, at all. They, did, they boasted about their own might, their own strength. I've done this. This is my doing. And the Lord is very aware of their haughty spirit. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, God says to Assyria, to Sennacherib, I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out and you're coming in. I know you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, because of your arrogance has come to my ears, therefore for I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. I will turn you back by the way which you came. What does verse 27 remind you of? I immediately thought of Psalm 139, which when David says to the Lord, Lord, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you know everything about me. You know all about me. You know everything I'm doing. There's nothing that's lost on you that I'm doing. You know all my activities. Every word I say, every thought I think, you know it all. That's what the Lord says about the Assyrians. You think I don't know this? That you guys are so arrogant? You think I don't? Hezekiah wondered, maybe the Lord didn't hear this. The words of the rapture. Oh, he heard it. He's well aware of it. He knows all this. He knows how arrogant they are. Twice it says, the Lord says, you're raging against me. I know this. In chapters 18 and 19, we've seen how they rage against the Lord with their arrogance word. They mock, they mock him. They belittle him. They defy him, treat him like another idol. They think they're God. They think they're in charge. In, in 1912, you all know the story, a uh, ship named Titanic took its maiden voyage, and it was designed by a uh, company called the White Star Line. An employee of that company, before the launch, said this, not even God himself could sink this ship. Not even God himself could think, that ship I'm not going on. If I, if I, if I go on a, a cruise, you know, like one of these cruises, everybody, a pleasure cruise, and somebody says that before we leave, I'm going back home. You know, that sh- they believed that until the ship ran into one of God's icebergs. And 1,500 people or so lost their lives in the tragedy. Anybody who boasts against the Lord is going to regret that sooner or later. The Lord pronounces judgment on Assyria in verse 28. He says, therefore, because of your arrogance, you're raging against me, you're blasphemy against me, I will put my hook in your nose, my bridle in your lips. I'm going to turn you back by the way which you came. Why does he say that? Well, the Assyrians were well known for their practice of, of treating captured prisoners like animals. So they're very cruel people. And the Assyrian records, one of the Assyrian kings, Tiglath-Pileser I, says this. He says... Uh, I, uh, of captives, he says, I attached to their noses ropes and took them to my city. Another Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, says this of one captive. He says, I pierced his chin with my hand dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope. 
I put a dog chain upon him and made him occupy a kennel, a dog kennel, of the east gate of the inner wall of Nineveh, treating them like animals, their captives. And the Lord says, you guys do all this stuff? If you treat people like animals, captives, I'm going to pay you back for that. I'm going to pay you back for your cruelty. What's the point here? Assyria boasted of their might and their power when the fact is God predestined them to accomplish his purpose. We don't charge God with sin here. God didn't participate in their sin. He simply used what was available. The Assyrians, who were evil people, out on the attack, and God used them for his purposes. God, and the point is this. God is in control, not Assyria or anybody else. No one is in control. God is ultimately in control, and that should bring reassurance to Hezekiah, to whom and it must have appeared that Assyria was in control. It sure looked like it on the surface, didn't it? When they looked out, they saw Assyria. They heard Assyria. They heard the threats of Assyria, the taunts of Assyria. It looked like they were in control. But ultimately, God is in control. He knows all this is happening. And we, too, can trust. We can trust in God who, and, and because the enemies of the gospel are not in control. God is in control. Fourthly, and finally, Hezekiah is reassured by a promise of protection. Reassured by a promise of protection in verses 29 and following. Notice the sign of their protection in verses 29 to 31. The sign of their protection. Look at verse 29. <clears throat> God says, this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. From the same. In the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Now keep in mind, uh, Assyria has devastated many cities in Judah. And, uh, but when the Assyrians leave, and they will leave, according to this, they will leave, the survivors will be able to eat of what grows of the crops that year. There's the crops that are going to be left over, they're going to be able to eat of those crops. And by the third year, after Assyria is gone from the land, crops are going to be back to normal growth. They'll be eating normally again. In other words, it's a reassuring word to Hezekiah, you guys are going to survive the assault. And the threat that you're being given right now. You're going to survive all this. And then notice the guarantee of their protection in verse 32 through 34. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to this city of Jerusalem. He won't even shoot an arrow here. <clears throat> he will not come before with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it to try to break into the city walls. By the way that he came, by the way the same he shall return, he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city. God says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. The king of Assyria has yet to set a foot in Jerusalem. He's still in Lachish or Libna or wherever he's fighting the Egyptians at. He's been over there. And now the Lord says he's not welcome here. There's not going to be a welcome mat thrown out for him. He certainly won't be using any weapons here. He won't be doing a, committing a siege here against the city of Jerusalem. In fact, he's going to go back home to, to Assyria. Why? Because the Lord himself will protect Jerusalem. Why? Two reasons. Number one, for his own sake. For his own sake. Assyria has thrown down the gauntlet. They have openly defied God. They've done it plainly, boldly, blatantly. And he's going to show them who's, who's in charge. They think they're in charge. He's going to let them know, okay, you've thrown down the challenge. I'm going to show you who's in charge. I'm doing it for my sake. But I'm going to do it for David's sake as well. Because he, he made promises to David, like in 1 Kings 15, 4, 
where he said, David, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and establish Jerusalem. Yes, there's going to come a time when Jerusalem is going to be punished, rightfully so, because of their sins, but not right now. Right now, God's going to show who's boss. He's put up with this arrogance long enough. He's going to protect the city. He guarantees it. And then thirdly, the fulfillment of their protection. In verses 35 to 37, the fulfillment of their protection. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with a sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Ezarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Uh, now, all's well in the Assyrian camp during the day. But at nighttime, all's not well. The angel of the Lord comes, kills 185,000 soldiers. Second Chronicles 32.21 says this, The Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior commander, an officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. And when people woke up in the morning, that is the living people, they saw dead bodies everywhere, all over the place. Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance is answered. The Lord's vindicated. Sennacherib is forced to leave Judah. He's forced to leave because, uh, and this fulfills verse 33. He's going to come, go, leave the way he came in. And Second uh, Chronicles 32.21 says, Sennacherib returned in shame to his own land. Returned in shame. So boastful and arrogant and proud against God. Has the, the audacity to defy God. And goes, now has to go home in just total disgrace. And Assyria does not take too kindly when they lose battles to their kings. According to the people who figure out chronology and dates, verse 37 happened about 20 years later. He was killed by two people. And these two people aren't just any two people. They are his sons, as a matter of fact. Second Chronicles 32 tells us. These are his two sons. Two of his sons killed him. And then another son, Ezra Haddon, becomes king later on. <clears throat> Sennacherib dies by the sword, just like the Lord said in verse 7. He's going to die by the sword. Everything is completed. The fulfillment is complete. All the prophecy has been fulfilled here. You know what's interesting to me, in addition, besides the whole story itself? It's the, <clears throat> the lapse of time. Even years or centuries, in, in some cases, in prophecy, is no issue to the Lord at all when he makes a prophecy. Not an issue to him. He doesn't care how long it takes. could take years, could take days, could take centuries. The fulfillment of this prophecy took place, took place in three phases. Did you notice that? <clears throat> Number one, Sennacherib heard a, re, a rumor, a report, and got distracted fighting Egypt. He said that would happen. Number two, later, his, his on, later on, his army is decimated by the Lord. Third phase, Twenty years later, <clears throat> Sennacherib is killed by his own sons. That should teach us something about how the Lord views prophecy time-wise. When he gives a prophecy in the Old Testament, it may not happen for a long time, and he doesn't care. It happens on his timetable. We always have to figure everything out. We're, we, don't have to figure out we shouldn't have to figure out everything God does like this all the time. Let it happen when it happens. Sennacherib mocked the Lord. He claimed he had no power. God had no power against him. The truth is, as we read in these final verses, Sennacherib's God, Nisroch, had no power against the God of the Bible. And to add insult to injury, the Assyrian chronicles in history and the Babylonian chronicles in their, of their history confirm Sennacherib's murder by his two sons. That's exactly what happened, they say. 
You know, the Assyrian kings like to brag about their victories. They love to brag about their victories. When, when Sennacherib defeated the important city of Lachish in Judah, western Judah, one of the fortified cities, he made sure everybody knew about it. And archaeology has uncovered in his palace, Sennacherib's palace, reliefs that were on the palace walls describing, depicting the battles of Lachish and how Lachish was defeated. And, they, and those reliefs on the walls are 30 feet, 38 feet long. They're 18 feet wide. That's a lot of space to brag about your victory. Lots of space for people to come in and look. Oh, look what the king of Assyria did. Defeated Lachish. But there is no Assyrian record of the real trophy, the capture of Jerusalem. Because it never happened. They don't, re- they don't record, we beat Jerusalem. Never say they can't say it. They didn't say it because it didn't happen. It's because the Lord won the battle. Second Chronicles 32:22 says, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. The Lord protected the city of Jerusalem just like he said he would. What's the lesson for us? Be assured that you can trust in the Lord to do what he says he's going to do in his word. If he says, I'm going to do this in my word or do that in my word, you can trust that. You can count on that. Hezekiah could trust him because he's trustworthy. God is trustworthy. We can trust God. Why? Because he's trustworthy. Scripture says, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Lord, we, are, we do recognize tonight that you are the everlasting rock. So often, Lord, we don't trust you. We worry about circumstances and all that's in front of us. Things look bleak for us. Things look very bad for us. Things look like they are, we're in great distress, and we may be in great distress. But, Lord, we pray we'll learn to trust you, that knowing that you're always there for us, you're always, we can depend upon you, that you take care of us, that you love us, that you want to glorify yourself through us. We pray we would trust you this week. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.